Good morning, Hillcrest Baptist Church. You know, I bring my family to the, the 8 o'clock service, and because we have kids, out of uh, consideration, we sit towards the back. And then for the 10 o'clock, I like to um, stand and sit in the front. And, uh, you know, in life, there's the, the buffeting of your, your heart and your soul in terms of doubts and fears and things like that, but nothing matches the, the buffeting of your heart, of the singing of the saints. That was special. It is a pleasure to stand in the front and listen to you sing. We come to John chapter 21, and uh, this is the last chapter in the Gospel of John. We're going to be here for two weeks, so next week we're going to come to an end in our study in John, and then move on to something else. But let's read together John chapter 21 from verse 1 to 17. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. They said to him, we will go, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Let's pray. Holy Father, we 
come together knowing today that as we come into your presence as your church, that we find grace and we find mercy. We find a, a God who has given us far more than we could ever hope to ask for. We find love and reception. And we come to your word and ask, Lord, that you would apply this word to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure one of the, the hardest things about writing a story is knowing how to end the story well. And I, I'm going to apologize in advance for this illustration. If you get to know me, you'll know that I'm a, a fan of uh, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. And there's so much good material there, so you will hear from time to time about it. But when Peter Jackson turned Tolkien's books into a series of movies, he kept quite closely to the books, but his ending was very different. And he, he took criticism because he actually left out an, an entire scene that we see in the end of Tolkien's book. Uh, it included a, a battle and, and quite a, a number of pages. He was accused of opting for more of a, a Hollywood ending in his movie, where after that final battle with Sauron, the whole world is happy and right and evil is done away with. And the hobbits then return to a, an idyllic shire where everything is at peace. In reality, after Sauron was uh, defeated in the books, evil still existed in the world. And the hobbits had to return to a shire under that evil control. And they had to fight to liberate their home. The Jackson has been accused of missing a an important point for Tolkien. Um, in fairness, the final movie in The Lord of the Rings was already like three hours long. He had to cut some things. But while The, the Lord of the Rings is accused of having too little in its ending, uh, John has been criticized for having too much. And so we saw the end of chapter 20, this great climactic resurrection scene where Thomas, who wasn't with the other disciples when they saw Jesus, said to them, unless I feel the scars, I will never believe. Jesus appeared to Thomas and invited him, saying, Thomas, feel my hands and my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. A climactic statement of the whole book. And John commends Thomas's confession to us and then writes his purpose statement, the reason he wrote this book in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So say the critics, we roll credits at this point. Turn the page and what you should expect to see is Acts chapter 1 with the story continuing there. But when we turn the page, we see more in the Gospel of John. A scene where the disciples are, are fishing of all things. So the critics say this is so much of an anticlimax. It can't even be written by the original author. And yet their arguments, I believe, are totally unconvincing. There is something important here in this chapter 
that I believe is directly connected and central to John's purpose in writing. See, John spends more ink than any of the other gospel writers in describing these post-resurrection encounters with the disciples. They are given to us, to be sure, um, as a reason for faith, as a reason to believe that Jesus actually rose again. But I believe John's purpose goes beyond even that. He doesn't just focus on the facts of the resurrection, but on what the resurrection means for the disciples, for the life that it brings. A weeping and sorrowful Mary finds joy when she meets Jesus. For fearful disciples locked behind doors, it means courage and commission. For doubting Thomas, it, it means the bringing forth of this faithful declaration, my Lord and my God. And there's a verse that I, I keep, find myself keep quoting when we talk about these encounters. A verse in the book of Isaiah, a prophecy of Jesus Christ from Isaiah 42 verse 3, which is so relevant and so evidenced in these encounters. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. And if John's purpose is to encourage us in the hope of the resurrection and the hope to bruised reeds, isn't there one massive loose end? And that's the matter of Peter. What about Peter? He must be the most bruised of all. He at this point still has this massive failure hanging over his head. He has seen Christ since Christ rose, but it looks like Jesus has waited till now to restore Peter. In chapter 13, you remember the night before the crucifixion, Jesus tells his disciples that he must go where they cannot follow and speaking about his death. And Peter makes that bold statement, I will lay down my life for you. And in another gospel, he says, looking at the, the disciples in the room, even if they all fall away, I will never fall away. And it's then that Jesus predicts his denial. Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And so after the arrest, all the disciples scatter, but Peter follows, it says, at a safe distance, even into the very courtyard of the high priest. And it's there that he denies Jesus three times. Even another gospel tells us with cursing. I never knew him, I tell you. I'm not one of his disciples. I believe you'd be hard-pressed to find a worse sin than this. A worse sin than Peter cursing and calling down curses, saying, I do not know him. Disowning Christ. Jesus had said to his disciples, He who denies me before men will also be denied by my Father, or before my Father. In Luke's account, when Peter denies Jesus that third time, he actually is able to see Jesus. He looks across the courtyard and Jesus sees him. They are face to face. They lock eyes for that moment. And Peter leaves that courtyard weeping bitterly. That's his last interaction with Christ. His last 
exchange. Imagine the weight on Peter's shoulders. But the story is not over. And thank God the story is not over. Jesus is not done with Peter. The resurrection has hope even for a failure like him. Because a bruised reed he will not break. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan minister who wrote in the 16th century, wrote a famous work called The Bruised Reed, in which he unpacks Isaiah 42 verse 3. And he, in one of the sections, he, he talks about the way that Christ often deals with bruised reeds. He says Christ brings healing, but often he does it by further bruising. Christ wounds in order to heal. So, so Richard Sibb says, usually God empties men of themselves and makes them nothing before he will use them in any great service. God's mercy, he said, must needs often sting. And we see that in this passage. This encounter is a, a wounding encounter. But it is not Jesus getting back at Peter. It's in this way that Jesus will heal and restore Peter. He knows exactly what Peter needs, and he brings hope to bear because of the resurrection over the failure of Peter. And what we see and what happens on this beach will provide for Peter a foundation for the rest of his life, a truth that nobody will ever be able to take away, the secure love of Jesus Christ for him. And John would have the hope given to, be, to Peter be your hope as well today. Have you ever felt the sting, the knowledge, the, the sting of having let down your Lord? Have you ever shed bitter tears over your failure, over your falling? Do you maybe even now feel ashamed because of your past or ashamed because there's a, a habit in your life that you just can't seem to, to break. You don't know where to find hope. This passage is precious for all of us, all of us who need hope in our failure. The story didn't end. And so as we unpack this passage, this section, and discuss the hope on offer for you and me today, we, we'll do it with these two headings. In verses 1 to 14, we see Peter's reception and verses 15 to 17, Peter's restoration. So number one, Peter's reception. The scene begins with Peter and these disciples in Galilee. And Peter can't just sit around. And so he says, I'm going fishing. And they decide to go with him. They go to the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the, known as the Sea of Galilee. And we can't and shouldn't speculate too much as to what is in Peter's mind, I believe. We don't know what is in his mind. He might be thinking, I've got to go back to my old life. Maybe he's thinking, this is all that is left for me. Jesus is alive, yes. And maybe he does still have something for us, still have a mission for his disciples, but surely not for Peter. Surely not for the failure. Maybe Peter's just hungry, I don't know. After a frustrating night of catching nothing, in verse 4, it says, Just as the day is breaking, they see this figure on the beach from their boats. They didn't know that it was Jesus. And we're not sure why. We're not sure if this is one of those mysterious 
post-resurrection encounters where for a time Jesus' um, person is hidden from those he's met with. It could just be he's about a hundred yards off and they can't make him out in the morning light. It's still a little dark maybe. Well, the figure calls out and he says something quite patronizing, doesn't he, in verse 5? Children, do you have any fish? Imagine yourself a, a seasoned Durban fisherman after a frustrating time on the pier. I don't know, are you allowed to fish on the piers here? I'm, I'm not sure, but after a frustrating time, it's the equivalent to somebody yelling out, you lighties catch anything? It gets worse in verse 6. He says, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Well, thank you. We didn't think of that all night long. And we don't know if it's just curious hope or tired resignation or maybe just to prove this guy wrong. What do we have to lose? But they obey the suggestion. It says they're not able to haul in that catch because of the quantity of fish. In verse 11, John says it was 153 large fish. We bought our kids these little nets that we take to the beach where they have rock pools down on the coast. And Noah loves to spend time trying to catch fish. And they have these rock pools where you can see the fish a meter before your eyes. And so he puts his net into the water. And he can be there until the tide comes in and washes him away, he's never going to catch a fish. Uh, maybe, maybe when he's older, I'm not sure. 153 fish from one catch. That's when the, the fish swim into your net. And I, and I say this because there's a lot of speculation around this passage. Why does John say 153? From the church fathers, even to modern scholars, a lot of ink has been spent in speculating behind the, the hidden meaning in the number, 153. Maybe you've heard something and, and have a theory. And I could be wrong. There could be some very well-hidden meaning. I think it's just that they were amazed. Can you believe what just happened? I wonder how many there are. There are. So one of the disciples counts them, and there's 153, and John is sharing an eyewitness account. It's a lot of fish. It's at this moment, when this catch comes in, that the penny drops for John in verse 7. He puts two and two together. This probably was a deja vu moment. It's the same sea, the same activity, the same problem, a night without catching any fish, and the same miracle that got their first attention. Do you remember in the calling of the disciples, John realizes, he says to Peter, Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter doesn't give a second thought. Well, he's, he has enough time to, to dress up, it seems. He puts on his outer garment, but then he dives into the sea. He, he leaves his friends with the fish. Let them worry about the fish. I'm swimming to the shore. And in this, we see something quite different, don't we, to the time when Jesus first called him? When the, the first time Jesus did a miracle like this in Luke 5, they fish all night without catching anything. Jesus says, cast out your nets one more time with the same result. So many fish that their nets are breaking. What did Peter do? Do you remember? He fell at Jesus' feet and said, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
What has changed between then and now? Certainly not the sinful part. Whatever Peter had done, he hadn't yet done his worst in Luke chapter 5. But now, instead of pleading with Christ to leave, instead of swimming the other way, he'll swim the hundred meters to get to Christ. Doesn't have time for the boat and the fish. He can't get to him fast enough. Even after his greatest failure, Peter knows what he needs. He needs Jesus Christ. He needs to get to him. He knows him now. Jesus, friend of sinners. A bruised reed he will not break. There is hope in Peter's heart. Is this hope mixed with uncertainty? I'm sure it was. As he's swimming, there might be questions in his mind. What am I going to say to him? What could I possibly say? What will he say to me? I know that he's gracious and kind. But will he receive me after what I did with grace and forgiveness? How could Peter ever get, how do you get past that? I didn't, I don't even know him. I don't know who you're talking about. I'm not one of his disciples. How do you get past that? But instead of running away, Peter is running to Jesus. He's good when there's nothing good in me. Jesus is that way. That's the way I've got to go. Despite his failure and the truth that he has no right to expect any kind of loving reception, his heart is still the same as it was on that day in John chapter 6. Where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. And we need to learn from Peter today. What do you expect is Christ's posture towards you? Maybe you have made poor decisions. Maybe you've done terrible things in your life. Maybe you know, sitting where you are, that the only thing that you deserve from God is righteous anger. There is truth in that. We do not sweep our sins under a rug. And Paul tells us, he tells the Ephesians, that apart from Christ, we are objects of wrath. But if you today believe that there is no hope for anything except condemnation from Christ, then you are wrong. If you believe that before you can come to Christ, that you have to fix your life up a little bit, you will stay a slave to your sin forever. And if there is forgiveness for the likes of Peter, the promise is there for you today that he will receive you with mercy and grace. Maybe you already belong to Christ, but you've messed up. Maybe you keep messing up. And you think to yourself, Christianity seems to work for everyone else, but not for me. I'm always just a failure. Well, the message for you is that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. Don't run away. Run to Him. Come to Him again if you feel ashamed. Run to Him again if you feel a lack of any hope of victory. Come to Him and speak to somebody. Confess what it is that 
is going on in your life. Speak to an elder or speak to myself. And I promise you, I can speak for the elders. Our response will be the same. Let us go together to Christ, to the throne of mercy and grace. Let us find grace in your need. And this passage is shouting out to us something that we must not miss, something that provides a foundation for our hope in failure. And it's Christ's initiation in all these things, his orchestration even of the details of this event, of this event in his pursuit of Peter. Christ had told them to go to Galilee. He said, I'll meet you there. And they went fishing, these seasoned fishers, Fishers, fishermen. I think I said fishers at both services. <laughs> I didn't correct myself then. They hadn't caught a single fish. Why is that? It's because Christ has a purpose in the story. He is sovereign over the catch. He's the one who sent the fish into their nets. He's repeating, I believe, the miracle uh, that was there during... Peter's first call. This is bringing to Peter's mind that first call. And in everything in the scene, Jesus is setting this up, even this fish breakfast on a beach. There's something amazing in verses 9 and 10 that I'd never seen before studying it this week. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. And he invites them to, to come around to this breakfast. There are only two places in the New Testament where we see these, these words, charcoal fire. Both of them are in the Gospel of John and both of them in relation to Peter. There's now this charcoal fire on the beach where Jesus invites the disciples to come around for a breakfast. Do you know or remember where the other time was? On the night of Peter's greatest failure. In that fateful courtyard, Peter is shivering in the cold Jerusalem wind, perhaps shivering as well out of fear. And it is there that John says Peter drew near to a charcoal fire and warmed himself he did so there in the presence of Jesus' enemies. In the light of that fire, they recognize his face and say, we saw you with him. You are one of his. It was there that Peter denied the Lord. I am not his disciple. This miracle is a repeat of Peter's first calling, and this fire is reminiscent of his greatest failure. John, I believe, is showing us that Jesus is setting this up to do something great in the life of Peter. He knows, Jesus knows what Peter needs. And he will bring the power of the resurrection to bear in Peter's restoration. You better know today that Jesus knows what you need. He knows how to meet you in your failures. Are you filled with a, a fear this morning? You look at your life and the decisions that you've made, perhaps a habit that you cannot beat. Perhaps you feel your sin is too great. Maybe you're afraid, afraid that he is not going to be able to hold you or to get you through, that you will lose your salvation, that Jesus eventually is just going to say, I've had enough. I've had enough of you. And right you'd be to be afraid. Were it up to you alone. But are you his? Do you belong to him? 
Is your answer to the question, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Jesus, our Messiah, holds forever those he loves. He will hold us fast. He will not lose one of his own. Before Peter ever denied the Lord through weakness and the tempting power of the enemy, Christ had already prayed for him. John 17, I've guarded them and not lost one of those you gave to me. And now keep them from the evil one. Can the prayers of Christ fail? Do you know, child of God, that he makes intercession for you? I shared this with you, I think, midweek. That quote that stuck in my heart through the fears that I was having after my father's passing. If I could hear Christ praying for me, quote by Robert Murray Machine. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Isn't that true? If you could hear the voice of Jesus praying, what reason would there be for fear? Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So what will Christ do to restore Peter, to bring hope and healing that would transform this failure into a lifetime secure in Christ follower? Let's look number two at Peter's restoration in verses 15 and 17. While they're sitting around the fire, you wonder what is going through Peter's mind. What is on his mind? Well, the time has come. Jesus will minister to him and he looks Peter in the eyes and he asks him this cutting question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Why does he ask him that way? Remember Peter's boast in Matthew 26, 33, even if they, the disciples, even if they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus is probing here. And Peter's answer is interesting. In his answer, some of the words of the question drop off. He doesn't answer the whole question, does he? It's like he knows now that he either cannot appeal to his love in comparison with others, or else that it's irrelevant. He just says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. Jesus' question here is not intended to torture Peter or make him pay, but it is stripping Peter. It's bringing to mind Peter's former pride, the pride of his boasting. And so Peter doesn't try to answer in terms of relative strength. He appeals only to the Lord's knowledge, despite my failure, Lord, you know that I love you. And then a second time, Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. And a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And by this point, Peter is grieved and he cries out, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus responds, feed my sheep. What is Jesus doing here? Why does he ask him three times? It's because three times around a charcoal fire, Peter had said, I do not know him. Now three times around a charcoal fire on a beach, 
Jesus asks, asks Peter, do you love me? He's not trying to torture him. He's not making him pay. He's wounding him in order to heal. So says Richard Sibbs, as a mother is tenderest to her most diseased child, to her weakest child, so does Christ. Christ most mercifully inclines to the weakest and his way is first to wound and then to heal. And we see that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Jesus is leading Peter to full repentance in order to lead him to full restoration. He's leading Peter to a vulnerable appeal, stripping him of his pride and the pride of self-sufficiency. I cannot lean on myself. I'm not comparing myself with them anymore. All my hope is in you, in your omniscience. You're all-knowing. Search my heart. I am a failure, yes. But you can see my heart and whatever else is true of me, Jesus. You know that I love you, that I need you. Is that what you say today? And while the questions grieve Peter, what Jesus is doing at the same time is giving Peter three chances to declare his love from the sincerity of his heart without shade of self-righteous comparisons. Three confessions of the heart to wash over what Peter had done. Todd Donnelly, oh, Ted Donnelly, Donnelly <laughs> the, the American pastor said, Jesus' questioning is gentle but relentless. Each question makes him relive the bitterness of his betrayal. Yet each trembling profession of love wipes out, as it were, one of the stains of cowardice. It is when we are cut to the heart that we are able to love from the heart. And Jesus comes to us with real healing, not with cheap grace or quick fixes. Jesus' work in our life is to do deep heart work like a master surgeon because we need that kind of healing. Is that what you search for today? Is that what you're open to today? Maybe you, you look around at your life and your struggle with sin and you say, or you think at least in the, the dark parts of your heart, I'm beyond hope. I'm beyond hope and I'm useless in the kingdom. If that's the case, it's not that you need more faith in yourself. What you need is more faith in Christ to push aside pride and self-obsession and to cry out to Him and to put your hope in His power, not in your strength. Noah does things that are wrong from time to time. And sometimes I, I really just want to understand what is in his mind, in his heart. And so I say to him, Noah, why, why did you do that, my boy? And he's made a practice now of, of saying, sometimes on the verge of tears, I've got sin in my heart, Dad. He's turning out to be a good little theologian. But I know sometimes he's using it as a, a cop-out as well. And so I, I, I say we, we can't just acknowledge that. We can't just excuse it and move on. So I have to lead him. I say, what do we do about it? What do we do about that? Well, we go to Jesus. We bring it to God in prayer. Change my heart. Change my heart. We're not going to settle in our sinfulness we lean into Christ, as painful as that may be at times. 
for the work that he does. Three times Peter disowns Jesus. Three times Christ draws from his lips the confession of his love. And three times he commissions him. He's not restored him just to relationship. He's restored him to service in the kingdom of God. He didn't say to him, Peter, I'll forgive you, but your metal's been tested and you are no longer fit for service. No. His grace wasn't cheap and the healing not easy, the restoration painful. But Jesus released Peter for a lifetime of secure service. Later, he would write to a struggling church under the weight of persecution, the weight of this temptation to compromise. And he would say to them, 1 Peter 1, you who are born again are born to a living hope, an inheritance imperishable and kept in heaven for you. You're being kept yourselves by the power of God. And that wasn't just theory for Peter. He could say to them, I remember when I was at my worst, when Satan had asked to sift me like wheat, Jesus prayed for me and I fell, but I wasn't lost. I was kept. He found me and he restored me and he is holding me and holding you today. Feed my sheep, Jesus said to Peter. And that is exactly what Peter did with the rest of his life. Exactly how he called the elders in 1 Peter 5, he did it not under compulsion. When you're secure in Christ, it's not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in his charge, but being examples to the flock because he had been changed by the grace of God. When Christ first called him, he had said to him, you will become a, a fisher of men. And Peter and Jesus pursued Peter, and he pursued him right to the end. And this great failure would once again be used as an instrument in God's hands, in Christ's hands. Just a few weeks after this, where do we see Peter? The day of Pentecost. He's casting out the net, and his catch is way more than 153. Upon your confession, Christ will indeed build his church, Peter. What about you? This passage teaches us that there is hope. There is hope for all of us, no matter what our, our, our falls and our failures, even massive failure. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Is your answer to the question, Lord, you know that I love you? Well, if it is, Christ will deal faithfully and lovingly with you, and he will not fail. He will not fail his purpose in your life. Are you willing to be used of Him despite your failures? Put aside your pride and come to Him. And maybe you sit here and you, you say, I'm, I'm not sure. I want with all my heart to be able to say, Lord, you know that I love you. But I look there and my heart is so often cold. Well, come to Him. Don't run away. Run to Him. Come again with the prayer, Christ, I want my heart to be set ablaze with love. Break me if you have to, but heal me, I pray. And Christ is good. There is more grace in Him than sin in us. Let's pray. Father, You are 
gracious and you are kind. Kinder than we should ever have hoped. A kindness we should have more than we could ever hope to receive. We have from you through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross for us. We pray, Lord, that today again we would know that forgiveness for all of your children who are in the room today who are are carrying this weight, a burden of sin. We bring it. We bring it to you. We find healing and grace and mercy again in you. Forgive us again, we pray. And this week we pray that you would help us in our weakness, that you would keep our hearts close to you, that we would have hope, hope in a victory that comes through Jesus Christ. Keep us close, keep us holy, we pray. And when we fall, we thank you for your grace. Amen.